Thank you for joining us on the Hope Church LV podcast. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to listen to is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say, welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead and open up the Hope Church LV app or visit hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. If you haven't done so already, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast to help spread hope to the world. Once again, thanks for joining us today. Amen. Well, hello, Hope family. How is everybody today? Awesome. My name's Tom. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we're going to continue our series preaching through the book of Mark, and today I'm going to be teaching beginning in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. So you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn there. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. We encourage you, bring your Bibles. If, if your Bible's on your phone, that's good too. Pull that out. Let's read it together. I'll tell you the truth. I just want you to make sure you know I'm telling you the truth, okay? So uh, we're going to read that together. Let me ask a question uh, as we get started today. Have you ever thought deeply about what you believe? about what it is you believe, and maybe even why you believe whatever it is that you believe. The truth is, is that we all have a belief system. We all believe something, don't we? Right or wrong, good, bad, or ugly, we all have beliefs and we have a belief system. And I want to tell you today, I'm going to let you in on some of the Thomisms that I have, some of the beliefs that I have for myself. I believe that we landed on the moon. I, I, just a few of us, okay. <laughs> All right, well, that's what I believe. I believe, now, listen, all of my uh, compadres my age in the 50 to 55 range will agree with this. I believe 80s music is the best decade of music. No doubt about it. They just don't make them like they used to. I believe cornbread should be a part of at least one meal per day. Amen. Now, from trivial to important, and I didn't tell you all the important stuff, you know how I believe about faith, I think, or I hope you do. We all believe something, don't we? from the very trivial to the most important things in our lives. But there are also things that we don't believe. I'm going to share a few of those of mine as well. I don't believe in Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. Sorry. (laughs) I don't believe that pickles are required on a hamburger. In fact, I'd rather not. Though I like pickles, just not on a burger. And here's one that's really important, and I believe this one with all my heart, and honey, this is, this is for us. I don't believe I'm the one with the accent. <laughs> it's all the rest of you guys. Yeah, all y'all, that's right. So why is it that we believe some things and we don't believe other things? Does it have to do with lack of information, 
Is it because of different experiences that we have in life? Is it because it's what your family always taught you? Maybe it could be because believing something is easier than dealing with the reality of the truth because it costs us less. The truth is we all choose to believe some things and we choose not to believe other things. But I want us to think today differently and ask ourselves, start the, the lesson today, the sermon today, by asking ourselves two questions. The first question is this. Are there things I believe that I should not believe? Are there just some things that I believe that just may not be true? And are there some things I don't believe that I should believe? Now, obviously, we're in a church service. I'm a pastor. We have thoughts about faith. Are there some things that I believe about God that I shouldn't believe? And, and, and the more important question is, are there some things I don't believe about him that I should? Now, I know you think I'm preaching to the choir here, and it's all the people who aren't here today, but here's what I'll tell you. All of us started somewhere in the faith. All of us are on a different journey in the faith, amen? amen. And there are just some things that 10 years from now, you may look back and go, what was I thinking? And some of them might be big. And so I've prayed that today would be one of those days, one of those hallmark days in our lives where we could look back and say, Lord, you taught us something about yourself. You showed me something that changed my life forever. Now, in this passage in Mark chapter 6, God teaches us about what unbelief is, and then he's going to tell us what he thinks about it. Verse, just six verses, six quick verses. When I first got these verses and, and I was asked to preach it, I thought, man, what am I going to preach here? But it is packed with what God thinks about the unbelief that is shown to him by other people. This passage contains the reactions of those with unbelief and then Jesus' reactions to that unbelief. So let's go ahead and dive in. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. The Bible says he, Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, excuse me, in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. It's kind of, kind of funny a little bit. He couldn't do much there, but he did that, I'm just saying. It's pretty big, isn't it? And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So as we get started today, I want to give to you what we usually do in our service at some point and what we call our sermon in a sentence. The sermon in a sentence today is this. Unbelief in God and in what he has revealed to us is a choice each one of us makes. And that choice affects not only us, but those 
around us. Unbelief in God, what he's revealed to us about himself is a choice that each one of us makes. And that choice affects not only us, but those around us. As we begin today, as we always do, whenever possible, we wanna give you the context of this passage. And what we mean by context is what's going on in and around this passage. Listen, this is big stuff. This is, this is one of the most important things we can do as followers of Jesus as we study the scripture is we gotta know what's going on around it. It's how cults and world religions begin, amen? Like what is God saying in and around it? In the last four sermons here in Mark, we studied four of the miracles of Jesus in chapters four and chapter five. In them, we learned how Jesus calmed the storm just with his words, with his very words on the Sea of Galilee. Then we learned how he cast out a legion of demons, cast out of a man and then put him back in his right mind, so much so that he was hungry. In chapter five, Jesus healed a woman with an issue of blood that she dealt with for 12 years. And then immediately after that, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter, a 12-year-old girl, from the dead, like she was graveyard dead, and Jesus said, hey, time to get up. The authority Jesus had over nature, over demons, over physical sickness, and even over death should have made those that we just read about believe in him. I mean, if somebody does all that, surely there's something special about him, right? These miracles were known all around the region of the Sea of Galilee and over into the Decapolis and what is now modern-day Jordan, including in his own hometown there in Nazareth. They not only knew his miracles, listen to me, they knew him personally. The estimate of the population of Nazareth at that time, you know how many people were there? About 500. You know what that means? Everybody knew everybody. Anybody in here from a place where everybody knows everybody? Yeah, you're looking at one right here. They remember Jesus leaving Nazareth after carrying out the family business after his earthly father, Joseph, presumably had passed away. He'd been in that town for 30 years. And if they knew him, why in the world did they not believe in him? Why did they have unbelief? Of all the people on the planet who knew him best, why did they have unbelief? And maybe to answer that question, we got to define what it means to have unbelief. So unbelief, what we think unbelief is, what it's defined as even in the dictionary is an unwillingness to commit oneself to another or respond positively to the other's words or actions. When you don't believe in something, you don't believe what they say. You don't believe who they are. You're not committing yourself to that one to respond positively. Spiritually speaking, unbelief is the failure to respond to God with trust. And it shows not only doubt, but rejection, says Lawrence O. Richards. He goes on to say this. He says, the word unbelief has strong negative overtones, but at heart, unbelief is staggering back from God's revelation of himself, refusing to respond. And this unbelief exhibits a sinful heart that turns away from the living God. I know as I look out in the crowd today, I have no idea if this means anything to anybody, it means something to me. When I think about unbelief, I don't just think about those who are on the outside. I think about me. 
We know that this is the second time Jesus has traveled back to Nazareth. We know it's the second time that he taught in his local synagogue. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4 that, 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 that when he preached to them the first time in the synagogue, they were so upset with him after he taught that they tried to kill him. They rushed him to the top of a hill to throw him off, and the Bible says that he passed through their midst. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty cool. He got away from them. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'd make a second visit back to the synagogue, would you? But we find Jesus going back for the second time right here. And how did that turn out this time? How did it turn out after he taught? Well, that's where we'll spend the rest of our time today. We'll look at the seven reactions talked about in this narrative. Three from the people who heard, the people who were listening as Jesus taught in the synagogue, and then four reactions from Jesus after their reactions about his teaching. So let's start in verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. The first thing we're going to look at, we're going to look at the three people's reactions to Jesus' teaching. The Bible says in chapter 6, verse 1, he went away from there. Now, th there is the, the, the region near Capernaum. It's kind of the south part, the southwest part of the Sea of Galilee. So I just want you to kind of picture that in your mind, the Sea of Galilee, there and Capernaum kind of right there on the outskirts. And then so somewhere southwest of there was where Nazareth was. He went away from there after he had healed Jairus' daughter or, and, and, and a few other things according to the, to the other gospels. He was there, but then he went down, the Bible says, to his hometown. Now, I want to point something out about this hometown. The reason I keep saying Nazareth is not because it says Nazareth here, okay? It doesn't. What it actually says is uh, what's translated hometown is the word patrice, and it's where we get our word patriarch from. It has to do with of the fathers, okay? So if, if, if this was a place that was of the fathers, what they were saying was is Jesus went back to where his family was. Guess where that was? His hometown. Does that make sense? So, so if people say, well, I thought his hometown was Bethlehem. That's where he was born. And No, this was Nazareth. Nazareth was where he was raised. He was in Bethlehem for just a very short time, but he spent basically 30 years in the city of Nazareth. This is important because they knew him there. Verse 2 says this, And on the Sabbath, Saturday, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. And so here we see our very first reaction. The first reaction was astonishment. And many who heard him were astonished. This word astonished, listen to this, literally means to strike or to force out by a blow. In other words, the people were stricken with astonishment. They were filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. And it's in the passive voice here, which means this. It means it was happening to them that they weren't bringing it on themselves or, and that they weren't doing it. It was that they were astonished at what was coming to them. And what was coming to them was his teaching. They were astonished. Well, what were they astonished about? Well, two things, Jesus' wisdom and power. You say, how do you know that? Well, they begin to ask three questions. We see it clearly here. And the first question is actually uh, a prelude to the the. The two questions that would answer this. Here's what they say. Where did this man get these things? In other words, these things sound like something a rabbi would say, would say, but Jesus is no rabbi. These things were wisdom and power. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 
They say, what is this wisdom that's given to him? How is the wisdom that he has? How does he have it? And then they say, how are such mighty words done by his hands? In other words, how does he have this power? You see, they weren't denying that what he was saying was full of wisdom. And they were not denying that the things that he was doing was powerful and, and looked like somebody who was different than the man they were looking at. They could hear and see both these things. They just didn't believe it was from him. And so they were astonished. That brings us to our second reaction, doubt. Astonishment turned into doubt. Here's what they say. Is this not who we think this is? You say, how do you know that's what they said? Because they begin to ask more questions. Is this not Jesus, excuse me, is this not the carpenter? Is this not Mary's son? Are these not his siblings? Listen, his family was right there in the synagogue. Jesus was a hometown kid. They doubted because one plus one was not equaling two at the moment. This is wisdom for sure. And this is power for sure. But this is Jesus? They knew him personally, but they didn't know him like they think they knew him. And so you know what that turned into? It turned into doubt. Is this not the carpenter? Listen, everybody knew Jesus didn't just have carpentry skills. This guy was a professional carpenter. He was a woodworker. Historians tell us that it's possible that his dad had died by this point, like I said a moment ago, and that he had stayed to carry on the family business, mainly to take care of the, his family because he had a lot of younger brothers and sisters. He stuck around to work it out. Is this not the carpenter? Then they asked this question, is not this Mary's son? They continued trying to convince themselves that what they saw was not what they were seeing. They knew this man as their neighbor. You know, Mary's son. It's like when I go back to my hometown and people are like, who's that guy? And they go, oh, that's Thomas and Katie's boy. Is that not Thomas and Katie's son? Is this not Mary's son? We know Mary. We know all of their siblings. He even says that. He named the, 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 they named his earthly brothers and they mentioned his earthly sisters. Just to pinpoint that family. They were trying to convince themselves this was the Jesus they knew. Or was it? It's been said that familiarity breeds contempt. They were so familiar with him that they couldn't get past what they were hearing and what they were seeing. You know what the toughest part of me coming to Christ was? Not believing that I was a sinner, but believing that because I'd been in church all my life, how much did I need him? You think because you're here today, you know him? I don't never want people to doubt their salvation. I just wanted to know they got it. After you have it, I just want you to be joyful in it. But familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? It's Easter, let's go. It's Christmas, let's show up. They'd watched Jesus grow up. They knew his family. They knew that what his training was in. He was a carpenter, not a rabbi. They knew his brothers and sisters. And you know what else? None of them could do this. What he was doing, none of the rest of the family did. So they knew this had nothing to do with them. A.T. Robertson says it like this. 
He says, they did not deny the wisdom of his words or the wonder of his works, but the townsmen knew Jesus and they never suspected that he possessed such gifts and graces. They never even suspected it. How could this be? And so, just so we don't judge them too harshly, let's be honest. We can treat people like that too, can't we? People from where you're from know how you were raised. You share this common culture. You eat the same kind of things. You are educated the same way. You still have the same etiquette even to this day with those people. You understand each other. You see, to them, Jesus was acting like someone he wasn't. And even worse, he was acting as if he were the Messiah and they didn't want him to be that. How could anyone who taught as an educated, experienced rabbi with the wisdom with which he taught and was able to do the things that he did as far as his miracles come from us, they said. How is he one of us? And who does he think he is? They saw it as blasphemy, which is why they tried to throw him off the hill the first time. And so their astonish, the astonishment that led to doubt now led to their third reaction. They were offended. Mark tells us they were offended. The Bible says, and they took offense at him. This could also be translated, they were offended by him. And see, in our language and how we think, that makes more sense to me. They were offended by him. Have you ever been offended by someone? Maybe they said the wrong thing, did the wrong thing. Maybe they hurt you. Maybe you thought they were trying to hurt you. And so you were offended by them. Now you get what they're saying. The Bible says they were offended by God. Can you believe that? Either way, this word to take offense means to be made to stumble. When you think about taking offense at something, think about stumbling. This word was used as, a, as in hunting prey, especially in like a trap, when you trap something to catch it in hunting. One theologian said that the people in the synagogue that day were like an animal caught in a snare. They could not deny what he was saying and couldn't get away from its truth, but they also couldn't believe it was coming from him. And so you know what they were? They were trapped. This is all true, but this guy? And they were offended. This offended, this word offended or to take offense is in, in the imperfect tense in the original language. And this is important because we could actually translate it as they were offended. And they were not just once offended, but they were continuing to be offended. So picture Jesus teaching and then becoming offended and then picturing teaching something else and then being offended again. And then he taught something else and they were like, man, this guy won't stop. They continued being offended by him. You see, the truth was much like us, they may have been too proud to be taught by somebody like Jesus. He's our neighbor. He's a carpenter. They thought Jesus was acting like something he wasn't. Jesus' teaching astonished them. Jesus' teaching made them doubt him. Jesus' teaching offended them. And in this, Jesus saw and knew about their unbelief. That should not, those should not have been the reactions. But you know what? It sounds like human beings to me, doesn't it, you? Overwhelmed 
doubtful, offended? Have you ever been astonished that God would desire for you something that makes you uncomfortable? Do you know God might astonish you? Not in a great positive way, but in one that would say, how dare he ask me that? Reach the nations. I'm trying to reach my son. Getting the gospel to those with no access, spending time with him, getting to know him personally. How about this one? Dying to ourselves. I'm astonished at my astonishment. How about you? What about doubting him? We read dozens, if not hundreds, of promises in the Bible, and yet we doubt his love for us or his provision for us or that he's maybe forgotten us. Yet none of that's true. He does love us. He has not forgotten us. He will provide for us. And what about being offended by God? Man, I can't believe they were offended by God. That is unbelievable. Not me, Pastor Tom. That is not what I would do. But what about when God allows life to get tough for whatever reason? You're going through a sickness, an illness, a relationship issue. I mean, we tend to ask ourselves, is God not in control? Does he no longer know what's best for me? We're offended he would want me to believe that he's God and, and he wouldn't help me. Like he wants me to follow him, yet look at what he's not doing for me. I'm offended. So while we look at them and we say, wow, astonished in a negative way, doubting God himself and being offended by him, you see, we really aren't that much different than them, sadly. They were astonished, they doubted, they were offended. And now we're going to see Jesus' reactions to this. And here are the four, and they'll go quickly. Jesus' reactions to their unbelief. The first one we find in verse 4, the Bible says, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. His first reaction was resignation. You say, what do you mean by that, Tom? Jesus resigned himself to the fact that those who knew him the longest and the best would give him no honor but would rather disrespect him. In other words, they would not believe in him. Did Jesus need to be believed in because he needed the, all the feels, right? No, they needed to believe in him because he was the Savior, and he knew it. But he had resigned himself to say, they know me, but they won't follow me. You see, they were close to him in proximity. They knew him. And this proves that it's very difficult to already have a, set belief system about somebody or something and then change it. You remember how I started today? What is it you believe that you shouldn't and what is it that you don't believe that you should? Man, is it hard for us to switch our thinking and to change our belief or to even allow something else to come in and that's where these people were. When you have prior knowledge or a prior belief about something, it's easy to never see it the way that it really is. And they couldn't see Jesus the way that he really was. Here's a question. Have you already determined what you think about God and are unwilling to see him in a different way? 
I pray that you never, all, me too, Trenton, all of us, I pray that we would never come in these doors. I pray that we would never open our Bibles in the morning and say, Lord, I already know what I think about you and it's never gonna change. I pray that we are always open to learning more about him. You realize the God of the universe? We got a lot to learn. There's a lot of him. Do you know the word that I'm not, this isn't in my notes, so my apologies. The word Elohim is a plural word. God, Father, our God, you know why it's plural? Because he's heavy. He's big. There's a lot to him. I pray we'd be open to believing what he's teaching us about himself. The reason that he was disrespected, the reason he was dishonored is because they didn't see him like he was as God himself. How many Sundays have we sat through a service not believing in who Jesus really is? Maybe some of you here for the very first time, you've heard it, you just don't believe it. Here's what I can tell you. He is who he said he was. For those of us who have these set beliefs already, let's listen to him and teach us more about who he is. And don't forget his family's sitting here too. And guess what? Only one out of the many who were in his family, one believed in him, his mom. His brothers and sisters, according to historians, all came to faith later after he was gone. When they said, you know what? It was all real. And we don't even know if all of them came to faith. But nobody in this room except for his mom. So Jesus' first reaction was resignation to not be believed in. He had resigned himself. There are going to be people who will not believe in me. That's sad, you know it? You know what that means? They spend eternity separated from him. Reaction number two, disappointment. Disappointment. The Bible says here, he could do no mighty work there. Another way to say is that he chose to do no mighty work there. You say, wow, Tom, sounds to me like unbelief is Jesus' kryptonite. Superman had his thing. You know, Superman, he'd get around kryptonite. He'd just be like. Everything else, no problem. Didn't even need any spinach like Popeye. He was fine. But man, when he got around kryptonite, it was over. And so unbelief must have been Jesus' kryptonite, right? Not at all. Jesus could have, and he still can do whatever he wants whenever he wants it. Amen? He chose not to do it. Why? Because all of the miracles that Jesus ever did were done to prove who he was and why he came. The word miracle isn't even in this passage. But these mighty works are the miracles. The Greek word for miracles is the word semeon. It means a sign. And a sign always points to something else. You know, like the Cracker Barrel sign. <laughs> I'm not going to eat the sign. I'm wanting to know where Cracker Barrel is so I can eat. Signs point to something else. The miracles were but a sign. 
Jesus had compassion, and I'm sure that that drove him to do what he did, but I'm not sure it was the main motivation for him. You see, the reason for miracles was so that those who did not believe would come to believe. You know, all over the world, this is still happening. It's just here, we don't really believe in the miracles that much, and so Jesus does what he does to bring us to himself off what we will believe in. But I promise you, these things are still happening around the world. My brother here was just in a place this week where miracles still happen. And you know why? Because God wants to bring people to himself. The Savior has come. Salvation was here. That was the motivation. That was the reason for the miracles that Jesus did. But he knew in their unbelief that they would not, that a miracle wouldn't even change their mind. And so he, he didn't do it. And just like I did when I read the passage, I kind of giggle a little bit when it says, except he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. You know, nothing out of the ordinary. He just, boom, 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 boom. Healed, healed, healed. You, 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 you. That's all. Here, I got a question for us. What mighty work does God want to do in our lives and in the lives of everybody around us? But he doesn't because of our unbelief. Listen, I'm laying it right at our feet, Teddy. Is he able to do everything? Anything, everything. We're the problem. Jesus always wants to do more than we can expect, ask, or think. Clyde Cranford once made this statement. He said it's as if God is at the portals of the windows of of heaven holding this huge container, this huge pot of blessings that he wants to pour out on us but doesn't because of our disobedience. And this same principle, I think, can be applied to unbelief. What have we missed out on? I don't even want to think about that too long. What have we missed out on because of our belief, our unbelief? So Jesus' second reaction was disappointment because he wanted them to know him and believe him. The third reaction was amazement. He marveled at their unbelief, the Bible says. The Son of God, Jesus, the God of heaven, marveled in amazement. God marveled at something. God, who threw all the stars out in the sky, who put all the planets in place in our one universe of thousands, if not millions of universes, was amazed about this. This is not the same word as as astonished that we looked at before. This is the word thalmazo. It's also in the imperfect tense. Have you ever seen an and, and here's, so I'll explain to you kind of what that means. Have you ever seen or experienced something and gone, wow? Have you? Or just, just, I mean, I know it's early, but, you know, y'all, y'all could answer. Have you ever gone, wow? Amen, amen. And then you thought about it again later, even though you aren't still in that moment, and you said it again, wow. Like, that's what this word is. 
But here, it's not in a good way. He couldn't believe their unbelief. His, in fact, their unbelief dumbfounded him. Instead of, wow, it was more like this. Many theologians point out that this particular time was only one of two times that Jesus marveled at anything. Here in Mark 6, about their lack of faith. So, wow. But in Luke 7, he marveled at the centurion's faith. When Jesus, here's what the Bible says in Luke 7, 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You see, what got such a reaction out of God was the object of their faith in God in both of these instances. The centurion had his faith in God. But say the word, the centurion said, and my servant will be healed. And God went, wow, what faith. And here, they had no faith at all. And Jesus said, wow, I'm overwhelmed at their lack of belief. Jesus was resigned to the fact of their unbelief. He was disappointed in their unbelief, and now he marveled at their unbelief, but their unbelief would not affect his reaction number four, determination. And he went about among the villages teaching. The Bible just simply says those seven or eight words. He went about among the villages teaching. Jesus left Nazareth and taught somewhere else. This word among means all around or in a circle or in a circuit. It was like Jesus would go from place to place to place. Why would he do that? Because he was looking for those who would believe. I want God to stick around here. How about you guys? He doesn't stick around where there's no belief. Believing, finding those who don't believe, this lack of belief in God, the gospel, Jesus, the resurrection, redemption, total forgiveness of sin will not stop God. He will move on. Our God is determined to get to those without hope and get them the message of salvation. Jesus, he continued in the work of the Father that, that, that the Father had for him. Even though his resignation, and even though he had disappointment and amazement, they wouldn't believe. Even though that disappointed him, Jesus was determined to get the truth to those who would listen and believe. And it's, this, it's at this point, me being the missions pastor and all, that I want to preach a sermon on going to the nations, but that's not this passage. Determination Jesus had. So what do we do with this sermon, Tom? Well, I'm going to give you some applications here. And this is, if you've, if you've thought of nothing else and taken not another note, please listen here closely. All of these applications I had spread throughout the sermon when I first put it together. But then I thought, you know what, I'm going to capture all those and bring them out because I think it'll mean more. So I have six observations that I promise will go quickly. The Bible says here that they were amazed, right? 
The first application I want us to get today is we must be aware of our tendency to make the gospel and our relationship with God common. We've got to watch out. The closer we get in proximity to God's truth without believing, the easier it will become for our flesh to either not believe or to lose the wonder of what we already believe. Those of us who are believers in the room, I want you to ask yourself this question today. Am I still amazed about God's salvation for me? I pray that we are, but I'll just be honest with you. As human beings, it's easy for us just to kind of forget the blessing of what God's done for us. Second, we must be aware that the most important part of our faith is the object of our faith. So here's my question. What is, your ob what, what is the object of your faith? In other words, what have you placed your faith in? Like, what is it that gives you salvation? You think it's your baptism? Because it's not. You think it's your good works? Because it's not. Is it your family history? Because Papa and Mama and all the gang were in? No. Is it your morality? Are you a good person? Awesome. Lots of good people go to hell. Maybe a miracle that happened to you. God did this, and so I owe him this. No, no, that's not how it works. Or is it your faith in Jesus alone and what he did and accomplished? Let me ask you this question. This is something I want you to ask yourself. How amazed is God about the faith I have in him? Is God amazed at all about my faith in him? And if he is, is it bad? Three, we must be aware that God confounds the wise with the simple. God sent Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. He was not born to a king in Israel, in Jerusalem. He was put in an animal's feeding trough and he became a carpenter. You see, a person's position, affluency, or notoriety, or education is insignificant because God uses all people in his plans, amen? God uses, here's the way I love to say it, God uses nobodies who descend from nobodies. So here's a question I want you to ask yourself. Do I believe God can use me and am I open to being taught by those that God sends in my life? Like would God teach me something from someone who was less educated than me, who loved God less than me, who was younger than me. We also must be aware that our personal faith affects how God works among those around us. Our personal faith, what we believe really does matter. Jesus knew that no matter how many miracles he did, those with unbelief would still explain it away. When we don't believe, not only will we not be the benefactors of God's incredible blessings to us, but others will also miss out on blessings for them. God chooses the atmosphere of our faith to do his work. So here's the question. How is my disbelief affecting other people? Here's number five. The unbelief, excuse me. We must be aware that unbelief is not just a characteristic of people who aren't in the faith. Hebrews 3.12 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, excuse me, be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading to you to fall away from the living God. He said, be careful, take care, watch out. 
listen, you may be here today hearing this message and have the mindset that unbelief is a characteristic only from those who are on the outside of the faith or not yet in the faith. But unbelief can also be present in the life of a believer. Do we believe God will move and work? Do we believe that he will save our hard-hearted spouse, our wayward child, our far-from-God friend? Do we believe that God will still use us even after our gross, heinous sin? Do we believe that God is not only aware of life situations, but that he's in control of them? Here's the question. Do I have any unbelief in me? Ask yourself that question. Is there any in me? And then last, that our unbelief won't stop God. But it will stop God working through us. He'll move on and find those who are going to believe, and he will move on and find those who will believe with him to use. God wants to will. He wants to work. He's the same God that parted the Red Sea, that raised Lazarus from the dead, made a man's arm grow from withered to completely healed. He can do whatever he wants. He can use whoever he wants. I just wonder, I'll ask again, how many blessings have I missed out on because of my unbelief? Here's the question. Is my unbelief keeping me from being used by God? So I just let me go back to the sermon in a sentence as we finish. Unbelief in God and in what he's revealed to us is a choice. Each one of us makes. And that choice affects not only us, but all those around us too. Are you a follower of Jesus today? If you are, and God showed you something during this service as you read the scripture with me, if you felt that in your heart, there's actually an easy way out of this. Just repent. Just say, Lord, I repent of my unbelief today. I trust you. He will forgive. For those of you who are here and you're unbelievers, you don't know him, you, you have unbelief, and you've never given your life to, to him, repent. Tell him that you agree with him about your sin. He may not be asking you to list all the sin. He already knows them all. You really don't have to list them. But just say, Lord, I agree with you. My sin has separated me from you. I place my faith and trust in you and not in myself. And the Bible says he'll save you. You know why? Because he's not a liar. What he says he will do, he will do. Your believer, repent. This altar will be open today. You're welcome to come here. Just as maybe a, a, a source of accountability for you. Just repent. But for those of you who are not in the faith, we want to lead you to Jesus. Maybe there's somebody sitting beside you who can lead you to Christ and say, here's what I did. I admitted who I was. I believed in who he was. I confessed my sin and then he saved me. It's really that easy. But our pastors will be here. We'll pray with you. We'll help you. We'll lead you to him. And then you decide if you want him or not and he will save you. Amen? So as our pastors come, Lord, thank you for your grace today for your mercy in all things. Lord, there's nobody who's like you. There's nobody who loves us like you love us. 
God, would you help us today to pick apart that unbelief in our minds, God, that is so prevalent for us to just dismiss. Because God, there are billions who need you. For those of us in the faith, we ought not be the hindrance. For those of us who aren't, Lord, I pray that you draw them to yourself today. We trust you for it. We pray these things.